Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of restless spirits. I'm your demon guide to the other side, but you could just call me Paul. And I'm your host with the ghost, Jason Neering. And welcome to our third Halloween special. Today we're going to be reading some creepy old Japanese stories. And it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. These are my favorite episodes, our Halloween specials. Yeah, welcome everybody to the greatest episode ever. Yeah, and happy Halloween. Just get that out there right at the beginning here. Happy Halloween. So yeah, today we're going to be reading stories from a book called Kaidan, Stories and Studies of Strange Things. It was published in 1904, written by Lafcadio Hearn. And before we get started, I want to talk a little bit about this guy, Lafcadio Hearn, because he was a pretty important and really interesting dude. Paul, do you know anything about Lafcadio Hearn? You heard his name around? I have not. Really? We actually mentioned him in a past episode. I don't remember which one. It might have been the samurai one. I think he wrote some stuff about samurai. Way to set me up to look like a doofus. (laughs) Have you heard this guy, Paul? No. Actually, we talked about him. (laughs) It was a very brief mention. I don't blame you for not remembering. But uh, Thank you. Thank you. He was a pretty prolific writer about Japanese culture. Like I've heard about him just in, in random places. Like anytime... I don't know, I'm listening to something about Japan. His name seems to pop up once in a while. Uh, so I have some a quick little synopsis of his life because I thought it was interesting. Okay. Lafcadio Hearn was born in 1850 in Greece. He grew up in Ireland. He was abandoned by both of his parents. He was sent to school in France and then England He kind of bounced all over the place. Pretty crazy life that he lived. I mean, even early on as a child, you know. Uh, Age 19, he was sent to the United States and was told to find this family in Cincinnati that would help him start a new life in the U.S. So he hunted down this family and knocked on the door and they were like, oh, hey, uh, here's five bucks. Good luck. Bye. So, you know, he basically started his adult life in a new country with nothing. Wow. Yeah. But he eventually got into the printing business, and then he got a job as a reporter and worked for several newspapers in Cincinnati and then later in New Orleans. He even spent a couple of years in Martinique in the Caribbean. Wow. Yeah. This guy got around. Uh, In 1890, at age 40, he went to Japan as a newspaper correspondent, and he ended up just sticking around. He just decided to stay in Japan. He became a teacher. He married the daughter of a samurai family. Wow. He, He had four kids. He became a Japanese citizen, and he changed his name to Koizumi Yakumo and wrote a bunch of stuff about Japan. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, what a fascinating life. So at that time, at the end of the 1800s, Japan was still like a very foreign and exotic place to the Western world, you know? So Hearn is known for having introduced the rest of the world 
to Japanese culture. Like he wrote a bunch of stuff in English about Japan. And his writings are actually also well known inside Japan because they offer a glimpse into old Japan before that rapid industrialization. And he wrote down a lot of old legends that otherwise might have disappeared because they were, you know, passed down through the generations and nobody ever really took the time to write them down. That's cool. Yeah. Just one curious guy comes in. Oh, I should write this stuff down. Yeah. So there are actually museums in Japan about Lafcadio Hearn. Uh, in Matsue, you can find the Lafcadio Hearn Memorial Museum, as well as his old residence. So both of those are really popular tourist attractions. There's another museum dedicated to him in Yaizu Shizuoka. Nice. So cool, interesting guy. So quick note about this book that he wrote, Kaidan. It's actually spelled K-W-A-I-D-A-N. So it might look like it's pronounced Kwaidan, but apparently that spelling is based on a pre-modern Japanese pronunciation. So in modern Japanese, the book is pronounced Kaidan. Spelling is just an artifact from a bygone era. Hmm. So yeah, the book is basically just a collection of creepy stories from old Japan. They're not all necessarily ghost stories. You might not even consider all of them scary stories, but they are all a bit strange and perhaps unsettling. Would you agree with that, Paul? Did you read through like the whole thing or just pick out a few of stories that looked interesting or what? I didn't read the ending of every story. You want to surprise yourself? Yeah. So I found like the ones I was like really into, I kept reading and I, I read the whole thing. So I'm going to yeah. read those, but I'm, I'm only vaguely familiar with some of these stories. Cool. Would you call them horror-y stories or? There's a handful that are like pretty spooky, you know, mm -hmm. pretty maybe borderline horror-y. Yeah. And there's some that are just like, well, that's some weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I tried to pick like the scarier ones, but yeah, me I mean too. they're all they're all me fun. Anyway. So we'll, we'll see how far we get here and yeah. how long it takes us to read these. Well, shall we get started? Yeah. All right. What's the first one you were most excited to read? Oshidori. Well, why don't you start with that one then? And we'll we'll just alternate. We'll pick every every other one. Okay. Thank you for letting me do the honors. Of course. Oh, you know what? Another thing I wanted to mention real quick before we start is, did you notice that there are like little numbers in each story? Yeah, the notations. Yeah, so like there's a page at the end of the book that has notes about like specific cultural references and stuff. So I was thinking like, while you're reading the story, I'll have that page pulled up. And if you come across one of those numbers, tell me and I'll read the the little footnote kind of thing. Okay. That work? Yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds cool. Cool. All right, let's get some ambiance going here. Some spooky Halloween-y ambiance. All right, go for it. Oshidori. There was a falconer and hunter named Sonjo who lived in the district called Tamuranogo of the province of Matsu. One day he went out hunting and could not find any game, but on his way home at a place called Akunuma, he perceived a pair of Oshidori. One, 
From ancient time in the Far East, these birds have been regarded as emblems of conjugal affection. Okay. That's definitely going to play into this story. So he perceived a pair of Oshidori swimming together in a river that he was about to cross. To kill Oshidori is not good, but Sanjo happened to be very hungry, and he shot at the pair. His arrow pierced the male. The female escaped into the rushes of the further shore and disappeared. Sanjo took the dead bird home and cooked it. That night he dreamed a dreary dream. It seemed to him that a beautiful woman came into his room and stood by his pillow and began to weep. So bitterly did she weep that Sanjo felt as his heart were being torn out while he listened. And the woman cried to him, Why? Oh, why did you kill him? Of what wrong was he guilty? At Akanuma, we were so happy together and you killed him. What harm did he ever do to you? Do you even know what you have done? Oh, do you know what a cruel, what a wicked thing you have done? Me too you have killed, for I will not live without my husband. Only to tell you this, I came. Then again she wept aloud, so bitterly, that the voice of her crying pierced into the marrow of the listener's bones, and she sobbed out the words of this poem. He kureba sasoeshi monowo, akanuma no, makomo no kure no, hitori ne zo uki. That translates as... At the coming of twilight, I invited him to return with me. Now to sleep alone in the shadow of the rushes of Akanuma. Ah, what misery unspeakable. Two. There is a pathetic double meaning in the third verse. For the syllables composing the proper name Akanuma, Red Marsh, may also be read as Akanuma, signifying the time of our inseparable or delightful relation. So the poem can also be thus rendered, When the day began to fail, I had invited him to accompany me. Now, after the time of that happy relation, what misery for the one who must slumber alone in the shadow of the rushes. The makomo is a short of large rush used for making baskets. Wow, okay. Yeah. Very informative. Yeah. The double meeting, the sly nature of these stories. After having uttered these verses, she exclaimed, Ah, you do not know, you cannot know what you have done, but tomorrow, when you go to Akanuma, you will see, you will see. So saying and weeping very piteously, she went away. When Sanjo awoke in the morning, this dream remained so vivid in his mind that he was greatly troubled. He remembered the words, but tomorrow when you go to Akanuma, you will see, you will see. And he resolved to go there at once, that he might learn whether this dream was anything more than a dream. So he went to Akanuma, and there when he came to the riverbank, 
he saw the female Oshidori swimming alone. In the same moment, the bird perceives Sanjo. But instead of trying to escape, she swam straight towards him, looking at him the while in a strange fixed way. Then with her beak, she suddenly tore open her own body and died before the hunter's eyes. (gasps) Sanjo shaved his head and became a priest. The end. Wow. Horrifying. I almost couldn't believe that last line when I first read it. Yeah. I was like, what? I was like, what, did a vegan write this like 300 years ago? Like, this is the perfect story. Sure. He's going to be a priest and eat vegetarian food. I think it's just because he was so creeped out. He's like, man, I need to get uh, close to the kami because this is, this is messed up. I just like that image of like a bird ripping itself apart, pulling its own flesh off. Yeah, it's Ugh. just, it's mad-eyeing you, like, swimming straight at you, and then all of a sudden it just tears its stomach open, like, yeah. and dies. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. And I guess I took a different moral of the story out of that one than you did. <laughs> I will now be reading a story called Diplomacy. It had been ordered that the execution should take place in the garden of the Yashki. Number one. The spacious house and grounds of a wealthy person is thus called. So the man was taken there and made to kneel down in a wide sanded space crossed by a line of tobishi, or stepping stones, such as you may still see in Japanese landscape gardens. His arms were bound behind him. Retainers brought water and buckets and rice bags filled with pebbles, and they packed the rice bags round the kneeling man, so wedging him in that he could not move. The master came and observed the arrangements. He found them satisfactory and made no remarks. Suddenly, the condemned man cried out to him, "'Honored sir, the fault for which I have been doomed I did not wittingly commit!' It was only my very great stupidity which caused the fault. Having been born stupid, by reason of my karma, I could not always help making mistakes. But to kill a man for being stupid is wrong, and that wrong will be repaid. So surely as you kill me, so surely shall I be avenged. Out of the resentment that you provoke will come the vengeance, and evil will be rendered for evil." If any person be killed while feeling strong resentment, the ghost of that person will be able to take vengeance upon the killer. This the samurai knew. He replied very gently, almost caressingly, We shall allow you to frighten us as much as you please, after you are dead. But it is difficult to believe that you mean what you say. Will you try to give us some sign of your great resentment, after your head has been cut off? Assuredly, I will, answered the man. Very well, said the samurai, drawing his long sword. I am now going to cut off your head. Directly in front of you, there is a stepping stone. After your head has been cut off, try to bite the stepping stone. If your angry ghost can help you to do that, some of us may be frightened. Will you try to bite the stone? I will bite it! cried the man in great anger. 
I will bite it. I will bite. There was a flash, a swish, a crunching thud. The bound body bowed over the rice sacks, two long blood jets pumping from the shorn neck, and the head rolled upon the sand. That's a little graphic. <laughs> yeah. Well, well written. Heavily toward the stepping stone it rolled. Then, suddenly bounding, it caught the upper edge of the stone between its teeth, clung desperately for a moment, and dropped inert. None spoke, but the retainers stared in horror at their master. He seemed to be quite unconcerned. He merely held out his sword to the nearest attendant, who, with a wooden dipper, poured water over the blade from haft to point, and then carefully wiped the steel several times with sheets of soft paper, and thus ended the ceremonial part of the incident. For months thereafter, the retainers and the domestics lived in ceaseless fear of ghostly visitation. None of them doubted that the promised vengeance would come, and their constant terror caused them to hear and to see much that did not exist. They became afraid of the sound of the wind and the bamboos, afraid even of the stirring of shadows in the garden. At last, after taking counsel together, they decided to petition their master to have a sagaki service performed on behalf of the vengeful spirit. Number two. A Buddhist service for the dead. Quite unnecessary, the samurai said when his chief retainer had uttered the general wish. I understand that the desire of a dying man for revenge may be a cause for fear. But in this case, there is nothing to fear. The retainer looked at his master beseechingly, but hesitated to ask the reason of the alarming confidence. Oh, the reason is simple enough, declared the samurai, divining the unspoken doubt. Only the very last intention of the fellow could have been dangerous, and when I challenged him to give me the sign, I diverted his mind from the desire of revenge. He died with the set purpose of biting the stepping stone, and that purpose he was able to accomplish, but nothing else. All the rest he must have forgotten, so you need not feel any further anxiety about the matter. And indeed, the dead man gave no more trouble. Nothing at all happened. So that's how it works, I guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. He accomplished his last goal. All is well. Yep, you can only have one piece of unfinished business, apparently. And he accomplished his when he bit that stone. I will now be reading Yuki Ona. In a village of Musashi province. One. An ancient province whose boundaries took in most of present-day Tokyo and parts of Saitama and Kanagawa prefectures. Oh, okay. There lived two woodcutters, Mosaku and Minokichi. At the time of which I am speaking, Mosaku was an old man, and Minokichi, his apprentice, was a lad of 18 years. Every day they went together to a forest situated about five miles from their village. On the way to that forest, there was a wide river to cross, and there was a ferry boat. Several times a bridge was built where the ferry is, but the bridge was each time carried away by a flood. 
No common bridge can resist the current there when the river rises. Mosaku and Minokichi were on their way home one very cold evening when a great snowstorm overtook them. They reached the ferry and they found that the boatman had gone away, leaving his boat on the other side of the river. It was no day for swimming, and the woodcutters took shelter in the ferryman's hut, thinking themselves lucky to find any shelter at all. There was no brazier in the hut, nor any place for which to make a fire. It was only a two-mat hut. That is to say, with a floor surface of about six feet square. And with a single door, but no window. Mosaku and Minokichi fastened the door and lay down to rest with their straw raincoats over them. At first, they did not feel very cold, and they thought that the storm would soon be over. The old man almost immediately fell asleep. But the boy Minokichi lay awake a long time, listening to the awful wind and the continual slashing of the snow against the door. The river was roaring and thus the hut swayed and creaked like a junk at sea. It was a terrible storm and the air was every moment becoming colder and Minokichi shivered under his raincoat. But at last, in spite of the cold, he too fell asleep. He was awakened by a showering of snow on his face. The door of the hut had been forced open, and by the snow light, he saw a woman in the room, a woman all in white. She was bending above Mosaku and blowing her breath upon him, and her breath was like a bright white smoke. Almost in the same moment, she turned to Minokichi and stooped over him. He tried to cry out, but found that he could not utter any sound. The white woman bent down over him, lower and lower, until her face almost touched him, and he saw that she was very beautiful, though her eyes made him afraid. For a little time, she continued to look at him. Then she smiled and whispered, I intended to treat you like the other man but I cannot help feeling some pity for you because you are so young. You are a pretty boy, Minokichi, and I will not hurt you now. But if you ever tell anybody, even your own mother, about what you have seen this night, I shall know it, and then I will kill you. Remember what I say. Yikes. (laughs) With these words, she turned from him and passed through the doorway. Then he found himself able to move, and he sprang up and looked out. But the woman was nowhere to be seen, and the snow was driving furiously into the hut. Minokichi closed the door and secured it by fixing several billets of wood against it. He wondered if the wind had blown it open. He thought that he might have only been dreaming, and might have mistaken the gleam of snow light in the doorway for the figure of a white woman, but he could not be sure. He called to Mosaku and was frightened because the old man did not answer. He put out his hand in the dark and touched Mosaku's face and found that it was ice. Mosaku was stark and dead. Poor guy. She got him. By dawn, the storm was over, and when the ferryman returned to his station a little after sunrise, he found Minokichi laying senseless beside the frozen body of Mosaku. 
Minokichi was properly cared for and soon came to himself, but he remained a long time ill from the effects of the cold of that terrible night. He had been greatly frightened also by the old man's death, but he had said nothing about the vision of the woman in white. As soon as he got well again, he returned to his call, going alone every morning to the forest and coming back at nightfall with his bundles of wood, which his mother helped him to sell. One evening in the winter of the following year, as he was on his way home, he overtook a girl who happened to be traveling by the same road. She was a tall, slim girl, very good-looking, and she answered Minokichi's greetings in a voice as pleasant to the ear as the voice of a songbird. When he walked beside her and they began to talk, the girl said her name was Oyuki. This name, signifying snow, is not uncommon. On the subject of Japanese female names, see my paper in the volume entitled Shadowings. He's got a paper on it. Mm-hmm. The girl said her name was Oyuki and that she had lately lost both of her parents and that she was going to Yedo, also spelled Edo, the former name of Tokyo. All right. Uh, where she happened to have some poor relations who might help her find a situation as a servant. Minokichi soon felt charmed by the strange girl, and the more that he looked at her, the handsomer she appeared to be. He asked her whether she was yet betrothed, then she answered laughingly that she was free. Then in her turn, she asked Minokichi whether he was married or pledged to marry, and he told her that although he had only a widowed mother to support, the question of an honorable daughter-in-law had not yet been considered, as he was very young. So he was saying, no, he's not married. <laughs> After these confidences, they walked on for a long while without speaking. But as the proverb declares, Ki gab areba, me mo kuchi hodo ni mono wo you. <laughs> when the wish is there, the eyes can say as much as the mouth. By the time they reached the village, they had become very much pleased with each other, and then Minokichi asked Oyuki to rest a while at his house. After some shy hesitation, she went there with him, and his mother made her welcome, and prepared a warm meal for her. Oyuki behaved so nicely that Minokichi's mother took a sudden fancy to her and persuaded her to delay her journey to Yedo. And the natural end of the matter was that Yuki never went to Yedo at all. She remained in the house as an honorable daughter-in-law. Oyuki proved a very good daughter-in-law. When Minokichi's mother came to die some five years later, her last words were words of affection and praise for the wife of her son. And Oyuki bore Minokichi ten children, boys and girls, handsome children, all of them and very fair of skin. The country folk thought Oyuki a wonderful person, by nature different from themselves. Most of the peasant women age early, but Oyuki, even after having become the mother of ten children, looked as young and fresh as on the day when she first came to the village. One night after the children had gone to sleep, Oyuki was sewing by the light of a paper lamp, and Minokichi watching her said, 
To see you sewing there with the light on your face makes me think of a strange thing that happened when I was a lad of 18. I then saw somebody as beautiful and white as you are now. Indeed, she was very like you. Without lifting her eyes from her work, Oyuki responded, Tell me about her. Where did you see her? Then Minokichi told her about the terrible night in the ferryman's hut, and about the white woman that had stooped above him, smiling and whispering, and about the silent death of old Mosaku. And he said, Asleep or awake, that was the only time that I saw a being as beautiful as you. Of course she was not a human being, and I was afraid of her, very much afraid. But she was so white. Indeed, I have never been sure whether it was a dream that I saw or the woman of the snow. Why would you say that? Come on, Minokichi. You must remember what she told you. Apparently not. Oyuki flung down her sewing in a rose and bowed above Minokichi where he sat and shrieked into his face. It was I! 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 Yuki, it was I! And I told you then that I would kill you if you ever said one word about it! But for those children to sleep there, I would kill you this moment. And now you had better take very, very good care of them. For if ever they have reason to complain of you, I will treat you as you deserve. I have chills. Even as she screamed, her voice became thin, like a crying of wind, and then she melted into a bright white mist that spired to the roof beams and shuddered away through the smoke hole. Never again was she seen. That's a good one. I like that. Yeah. They have this perfect life, and he's like, I remember this one time. Bro, you just ruined everything. I when, I when I was first reading it, I thought he was about to die. Yeah. She saved him for the kids. Thank God. She yeah. loved the kids more than him because he screwed it up and they didn't. But now she's not going to stick around? He's, he's all alone with these she, 10 she kids? She can't anymore. It was, it was a supernatural thing. Like, he, he broke, Once he says something, he broke she's, the rules. She was gone, huh? You know, she let him live and he had to be quiet about it and he wasn't. I would think that she would miss those kids, you know? She will, but he blew it for everyone. Had you heard of the Yukiona before? Yukiona? Yeah. Or Snow Woman. Mm, I'm not sure. I remember hearing about that in a manga, I think. Like some horror manga. I don't remember which one. Okay. You got another story for us, Jason? You know I do. I'm going to be reading The Story of Ote. Let's hear it. A long time ago, in the town of Niigata, in the province of Echizen, there lived a man called Nagao Chosei. Nagao was the son of a physician and was educated for his father's profession. At an early age, he had been betrothed to a girl called Ote, the daughter of one of his father's friends, and both families had agreed that the wedding should take place as soon as Nagao had finished his studies. But the health of Ote proved to be weak, and in her fifteenth year she was attacked by a fatal consumption. When she became aware that she must die, she sent for Nagao to bid him farewell. 
As he knelt at her bedside, she said to him, Nagao-sama? Number one, Paul. Sama is a polite suffix attached to a person's name. Thank you, Paul. Nagao-sama, my betrothed, we were promised to each other from the time of our childhood, and we were to have been married at the end of this year. But now I am going to die. The gods know what is best for us. If I were able to live for some years longer, I could only continue to be a cause of trouble and grief for others. With this frail body, I could not be a good wife. And therefore, even to wish to live for your sake would be a very selfish wish. I am quite resigned to die, and I want you to promise that you will not grieve. Besides, I want to tell you that I think we shall meet again. Dot, dot, dot. Indeed, we shall meet again, Nagao answered earnestly. And in that pure land, there will be no pain of separation. There's a number two on pure land. A Buddhist term commonly used to signify a kind of heaven. Okay. Nay, nay, she responded softly. I meant not the pure land. I believe that we are destined to meet again in this world, although I shall be buried tomorrow. Nagao looked at her wonderingly and saw her smile at his wonder. She continued in her gentle, dreamy voice. Yes, I mean in this world, in your own present life, Nagao-sama, providing indeed that you wish it. Only for this thing to happen, I must again be born a girl and grow up to womanhood. So you would have to wait 15, 16 years... That is a long time, but my promised husband, you are now only 19 years old. Eager to soothe her dying moments, he answered tenderly, To wait for you, my betrothed, were no less a joy than a duty. We are pledged to each other for the time of seven existences. But you doubt? she questioned, watching his face. My dear one, he answered, I doubt whether I should be able to know you in another body, under another name, unless you can tell me of a sign or token. That I cannot do, she said. Only the gods and the Buddhas know how and where we shall meet. But I am sure, very, very sure, that if you be not unwilling to receive me, I shall be able to come back to you. Remember these words of mine. She ceased to speak, and her eyes closed. She was dead. Tragedy. Nagao had been sincerely attached to Ote, and his grief was deep. He had a mortuary tablet made, inscribed with her Zokumyo. The Buddhist term Zokumyo, profane name, signifies the personal name born during life. In contradistinction to the Kaimyo, Sila name, or Homyo, law name, given after death. Religious posthumous appellations inscribed upon the tomb and upon the mortuary tablet in the parish temple. For some account of these, see my paper entitled The Literature of the Dead, 
in exotics and retrospectives. I don't really know what the heck I just said. <laughs> I, I do know there's something in Buddhism about you get a name after you die. Right, right. We uh, talked about that in the funerals and But I'm more stuff. confused about it after reading this footnote than I was before. Yeah. <laughs> well, apparently people have different names depending on uh, when they're alive, when they're dead, and, uh, you know. Was he calling her a different name then or something? Just said he, he had a tablet made inscribed with her Zokumyo. Oh, okay. Uh, and he placed the tablet in his Butsudan. Buddhist household shrine. That's right. And every day he set offerings before it. He thought a great deal about the strange things that Ote had said to him just before her death. And in the hope of pleasing her spirit, he wrote a solemn promise to wed her if she could ever return to him in another body. This written promise he sealed with his seal and placed in the Butsudan beside the mortuary tablet of Ote. Nevertheless, as Nagao was an only son, it was necessary that he should marry. He soon found himself obliged to yield to the wishes of his family and to accept a wife of his father's choosing. After his marriage, he continued to set offerings before the tablet of Ote, and he never failed to remember her with affection. But by degrees, her image became dim in his memory, like a dream that is hard to recall, and the years went by. During those years, many misfortunes came upon him. He lost his parents by death, then his wife, and his only child, so that he found himself alone in the world. He abandoned his desolate home and set out upon a long journey in the hope of forgetting his sorrows. One day, in the course of his travels, he arrived at Ikau, a mountain village still famed for its thermal springs and for the beautiful scenery of its neighborhood. In the village inn at which he stopped, a young girl came to wait upon him, and at the first sight of her face, he felt his heart leap as it had never leapt before. So strangely did she resemble Ote that he pinched himself to make sure he was not dreaming. As she went and came, bringing fire and wood or arranging the chamber of the guest, her every attitude and motion revived in him some gracious memory of the girl to whom he had been pledged in his youth. He spoke to her, and she responded in a soft, clear voice of which the sweetness saddened him with the sadness of other days. Then, in great wonder, he questioned her, saying, Elder sister, number three. Direct translation of a Japanese form of address used towards young, unmarried women. Yeah. I think in Japanese that would be onesan, because uh, in Japan you can call strangers, like, familial names like that. There are a bunch of cultures that do that, maybe specifically in Asia. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that in Korea, too, where they got they call everyone, like, Hajima or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, Onesan, so much do you look like a person whom I knew long ago that I was startled when you first entered this room. Pardon me, therefore, for asking what is your native place and what is your name? Immediately, and in the unforgotten voice of the dead, she thus made answer. My name is Ote. And you are Nagao Chose of Echigo, my promised husband. Seventeen years ago I died in Niigata. Then you made in writing a promise to marry me, 
if ever I could come back to this world in the body of a woman, and you sealed that written promise with your seal and put it in the Butsudan beside the tablet inscribed with my name, and therefore I came back. As she uttered these last words, she fell unconscious. Nagao married her, and the marriage was a happy one. But at no time afterwards could she remember what she had told him in answer to his question at Ikao. Neither could she remember anything of her previous existence. The recollection of the former birth, mysteriously kindled in the moment of that meeting, had again become obscured, and so thereafter remained. Okay, interesting. Isn't that a cool story? Yeah. I like that one. Like... <laughs> Everyone he loved had to die so he could have true love at the end. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Hill. Or, or with a happy ending? Yeah, you could say that. All right, I'll be reading A Dead Secret. A long time ago in the province of Tamba. On the present day map, And this is Jason now saying, as of 1904, remember, this is an old book. Yep. Tamba corresponds roughly to the central area of Kyoto Prefecture and part of Hyogo Prefecture. That's probably still current. Okay. There lived a rich merchant named Imuraya Gensuke. He had a daughter called Osono. As she was very clever and pretty, he thought it would be a pity to let her grow up with only such teaching as the country teachers could give her. So he sent her in care of some trusty attendants to Kyoto, where she might be trained in the polite accomplishments taught to the ladies of the capital. After this she had thus been educated, she was married to a friend of her father's family, a rich merchant named Nagaseraya. And she lived happily with him for nearly four years. They had one child, a boy. But Osona fell ill and died in the fourth year after her marriage. On the night after the funeral of Osono, her little son said that his mama had come back and she was in the room upstairs. That's creepy. <laughs> she had smiled at him but would not talk to him, so he became afraid and ran away. That's creepier. <laughs> Then some of the family went upstairs to the room, which had been Osono's, and they were startled to see, by the light of a small lamp which had been kindled before a shrine in the room, the figure of the dead mother. Yikes. She appeared as if standing in front of a tansu, or chest of drawers, that still contained her ornaments and her wearing apparel. Her head and shoulders could be very distinctly seen, but from the waist down, the figure thinned into invisibility. It was like an imperfect reflection of her and transparent as a shadow on water. Sounds like the definition of a ghost, I recall. That's a Yure. Go listen to our uh, very first Halloween special for (laughs) tales about Yure. (laughs) Then the folk were afraid and left the room. Below they consulted together, and the mother of Osono's husband said, A woman is fond of her small things, 
and Osona was much attached to her belongings. Perhaps she has come back to look at them. Many dead persons will do that, unless the things be given to a parish temple. If we present Osono's robes and girdles to the temple, her spirit will probably find rest. It was agreed that this should be done as soon as possible. So on the following morning, the drawers were emptied and all of Osono's ornaments and dresses were taken to the temple. But she came back the next night and looked at the Tansu as before. And she came back also on the night following and the night after that and every night. And the house became a house of fear. This is the most horror-y story yet, I think. (laughs) The mother of Osono's husband then went to the parish temple and told the chief priest all that had happened and asked for ghostly counsel. The temple was a Zen temple, and the head priest was a learned old man known as Daigen Osho. He said, There must be something about which she is anxious in or near the Tansu. But we emptied all the drawers, replied the woman. There is nothing in the Tansu. Well, said Daigen Osho, tonight I shall go to your house and keep watch in that room and see what can be done. You must give orders that no person shall enter the room while I am watching unless I call. After sundown, Daigen Osho went to the house and found the room made ready for him. He remained there alone, reading the sutras, and nothing appeared until after the hour of the rat. The hour of the rat, Neno Koku, according to the old Japanese method of reckoning time, was the first hour. It corresponded to the time between our midnight and two o'clock in the morning, for the ancient Japanese hours were each equal to two modern hours. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, I'm pretty sure I remember too, like the, the scariest time of night is like 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. I think. Mm. Even today. Like that's when the, that's when the crazy stuff happens. Mm. Since you mentioned that, another quick fun fact is uh, in Japan, summer is considered the, uh, the time of year for spooky stories and stuff because they're supposed to chill you to the bone when, <laughs> uh, when it's real hot outside, you know? So... Halloween is more of a Western idea. The fall being uh, the time for ghosts and that kind of thing. Is that like a cheat code? Like if you're scared enough, you can't feel hot? I guess. We'll try sometime. Yeah. Then the figure of Osono suddenly outlined itself in front of the Tansu. Her face had a wistful look, and she kept her eyes fixed upon the Tansu. The priest uttered the holy formula prescribed in such cases, and then addressing the figure by the kaimyo. Kaimyo, the posthumous Buddhist name or religious name given to the dead. Oh, you mentioned this. Yeah, we just talked about this. Strictly speaking, the meaning of the word is sila name, S-I-L-A name. Why are you nodding like that makes sense to you? Because I just read that and thought the same thing. Mm-hmm. I think I said Sila name, maybe. Mm-hmm. Did it also have this parenthetical? See my paper entitled The Literature of the Dead in Exotics and Retrospectives. Ah, uh, yes, it did. Yes, he also referenced that there. All right. So the priest uttered the holy formula prescribed in such cases, and then addressing the figure by the kaimyo of Osono said, 
I have come here in order to help you. Perhaps in that Tansu there is something about which you have reason to feel anxious. Shall I try to find it for you? The shadow appeared to give assent by a slight motion of the head, and the priest rising opened the top drawer. And it was empty. Successively he opened the second, the third, the fourth drawer. He searched carefully behind them and beneath them. He carefully examined the interior of the chest. He found nothing. But the figure remained gazing wistfully as before. What can she want? Thought the priest. Suddenly it occurred to him that there might be something hidden under the paper with which the drawers were lined. He removed the lining of the first drawer. Nothing. He removed the lining of the second and third drawers. Still nothing. But under the lining of the lowermost drawer he found a letter. Is this the thing about which you have been troubled? He asked. The shadow of the woman turned towards him, her faint gaze fixed upon the letter. Shall I burn it for you? He asked. She bowed before him. It shall be burned in the temple this very morning, he promised, and no one shall read it except myself. The figure smiled and vanished. I like that he's like taking liberties to read it. He could <laughs> yeah. just burn it, but he's like, I'm reading this. I'm this is juicy. I'm 100% reading this. I'm way too curious, and I'm doing you a favor, so I think yeah. I do, yeah, this yeah. is something yeah. I get to do. Yeah, this is a little reward. Everyone's happy. <laughs> Dawn was breaking as the priest descended the stairs to find the family waiting anxiously below. Do not be anxious, he said to them. She will not appear again. And she never did. The letter was burned. It was a love letter written to Osono in the time of her studies at Kyoto. But the priest alone knew what was in it, and the secret died with him. Alright. Just an old love letter. So did she really, really love the guy who wrote her that letter and was like still cherishing that? Or was she embarrassed that her current family <laughs> might find that letter and she would be shamed? a good question. I think that I feel like it's open to interpretation there. Yeah. Or maybe it was intended one way and I'm missing the context of 400 years ago Japan or whatever when this story was written. I guess I thought of it in the romantic way how she's just like Yeah, she's she cherished the, love. the letter. Clearly it's I mean either way it's it was maybe her first love, you yeah. know. That's what she was thinking about when she died apparently. Yeah, yeah, I could yeah, you're right, you're right. It all, it all adds up. You want to take us home for the last story of the night, Jason? Is this the last one? I think, I think we're getting there. Okay, so I'm going to be reading a story called Mujina. And before we get started, I have some notes here on this one. Because we've talked about Mujina before on the podcast. Do you remember, Paul? Are we talking like Tanuki? You got it. You may remember, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, in episode 41, that's our Tanuki episode, we talked about how this word, mujina, was another term often used for Tanuki and other similar small mammals 
uh, there seemed to be a lot of confusion in in the past about you know if these animals were different or the same or what. I'm so glad we're gonna have a Tanuki story. <laughs> Me too. I want to make sure to get this one in. There. And I didn't read the ending of this one. So uh, yeah, you can go back to episode 41 if you want to hear all about Tanuki folklore because oh, it's so awesome. Um, but all you really need to know about them for this story is that they are known as shapeshifters. So let's get started here. On the Akasaka Road in Tokyo, there is a slope called Kinokunizaka, which means the slope of the province of Ki. I do not know why it is called the slope of the province of Ki. On one side of this slope, you see an ancient moat, deep and very wide, with high green banks rising up to some place of gardens. And on the other side of the road extend the long and lofty walls of an imperial palace. Before the era of street lamps and jinrikishas, this neighborhood was very lonesome after dark, and belated pedestrians would go miles out of their way rather than mount the Kino Kunizaka alone after sunset. All because of a mujina that used to walk there. Number one. A kind of badger. Certain animals were thought to be able to transform themselves and cause mischief for humans. See, even back then, in 1904, they were calling them badgers. They're not badgers, they're tanuki. <laughs> Another note, I looked up this hill, Kino Kunizaka. That's still there, right next to the grounds of the Imperial Palace. You could visit it if you wanted to. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, so there was a Mujina that used to walk uh, on this slope. The last man who saw the Mujina was an old merchant of the Kyobashi Quarter, who died about 30 years ago. This is the story as he told it. One night, at a late hour, he was hurrying up the Kino Kunizaka when he perceived a woman crouching by the moat all alone and weeping bitterly. Fearing that she intended to drown herself, he stopped to offer her any assistance or consolation in his power. She appeared to be a slight and graceful person, handsomely dressed, and her hair was arranged like that of a young girl of good family. Oh, Jochu, he exclaimed. Number one. Oh, Jochu, honorable damsel, a polite form of address used in speaking to a young lady whom one does not know. All right. Oh, Jochu, he exclaimed, approaching her. Oh, Jochu, do not cry like that. Tell me what the trouble is, and if there be any way to help you, I shall be glad to help you. He really meant what he said, for he was a very kind man. But she continued to weep, hiding her face from him with one of her long sleeves. Oh, Jochu, he said again, as gently as he could. Please, please listen to me. This is no place for a young lady at night. Do not cry, I implore you. Only tell me how I may be of some help to you. Slowly she rose up, but turned her back to him, and continued to moan and sob behind her sleeve. He laid his hand lightly upon her shoulder and pleaded, Ojochu, 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 listen to me, just for one little moment. Ojochu, Ojochu. Then that Ojochu turned around and dropped her sleeve and stroked her face with her hand, and the man saw that she had no eyes or nose, or mouth. He screamed and ran away. Number two. 
an apparition with a smooth, totally featureless face called a Noparabo is a stock part of the Japanese pantheon of ghosts and demons. Nice. Up Kino Kunizaka he ran and ran, and all was black and empty before him. On and on he ran, never daring to look back, and at last he saw a lantern so far away that it looked like the gleam of a firefly, and he made for it. It proved to be only the lantern of an itinerant soba seller. Soba is a preparation of buckwheat somewhat resembling vermicelli. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, proved to be the lantern of a soba seller who had set down his stand by the roadside. But any light and any human companionship was good after that experience, and he flung himself down at the feet of the soba seller, crying out, Ah! 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 Kore, kore, roughly exclaimed the soba man. An exclamation of annoyed alarm. <laughs> Here, what is, what is the matter with you? <laughs> Anybody hurt you? No, nobody hurt me, panted the other. Only, ah, ah. Only scared you, queried the peddler unsympathetically. Robbers? Not robbers, not robbers, gasped the terrified man. I saw, I saw a woman by the moat, and she showed me, ah, I cannot tell you what she showed me. Hey. Well. <laughs> Why couldn't he just translate it to well? He, I don't know. He liked, he liked the, the Japanese-ness of it. <laughs> yeah, he just liked the feel of like that word. Yeah. Hey, was it anything like this that she showed you? cried the soba man, stroking his own face, which therewith became like unto an egg. Oh my god, okay, now it's scary. It wasn't as good, now it's scary. And simultaneously, the light went out. <laughs> the end. That's the end? That's the end. You didn't, oh, you didn't read this one? Oh, I didn't finish it. Oh, that's a fun one, huh? It's shorter than I remembered. I thought it was a longer one. Wow. But, uh, yeah. Wow. Um, so... Here's a fun thing about that story, too. After we did that Tanuki episode, I finally watched Pompoko, that Studio Ghibli movie about a bunch of Tanuki. Yeah. And there's a scene that is basically this exact story. Okay. They got it from Led, straight from Legend. Yeah. There's this guy that like tries to help a woman crying on the side of the road, and she, she even does that thing where she wipes her hand across her face and all her features just disappear. And then the dude runs to, like... Another guy that, I don't know, works with him or something and tells him what happened. And that, that guy is like, did she look like this? And he wipes his hand and his face disappears. So then the guy goes screaming and runs into like a combini. And everyone in the place turns and looks at him and none of them have faces. Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah. That's so scary. That is scary. I don't know why the thought of a faceless being is so terrifying, but it is like. Yeah. That's so disturbing. Well, it's like you thought this was a person just like you. Like, oh, the, this person yeah. is safety for me because I'm scared. And this is another person that I can share my horror with. And then, oh, crap, this is like the demon. Yeah, it's not even like just an animal or something. It's like, what has no face? It has no nose. It has no mouth. It has no senses. This is a monster. Mm-hmm.
All right. Well, I'd say this is a, another successful Halloween special. Always fun doing anything Halloween. Yeah. Well, again, happy Halloween to all our listeners out there. I hope you guys have tons of fun. And uh, if you want to check out our Instagram, we're at SJP Podcast. I'll be posting some uh, Halloween-themed pictures there, I think. Do it. I'll post some of our pictures from Shibuya on Halloween. The big, uh, I don't know, what do you even call that? It's a big outdoor party in Shibuya, and it's awesome. And we had a lot of fun there, right, Paul? Absolutely. What else do I say here? Let's see. How do, how do people contact us? Uh, you can do that at our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. You could also send an email to us. The address is feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. Paul, what are we doing next time? The next episode is all about Tokyo. We're finally tackling the big dog itself. All right. It's own dedicated episode. There'll be a whole lot to talk about. Yeah. All those different neighborhoods. We'll do our best to cram as much good stuff in there as we can. Yeah, it'll be a good primer for anybody planning on uh, going to Tokyo for the first time. And maybe, you know, even if you've been there, maybe you'll, you'll hear about some stuff that uh, you didn't know about. Yeah, maybe help you reprioritize which places you want to try to see. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. See you next time. At an early age, he had been be. At an early age, he had been betrothed. Betrothed. That is a hard word. <laughs> at an early age, he had been betrothed. At an early age. Let's just both take like <laughs> ten takes on betrothed real quick and see if we can get a good <laughs> betrothed. I was like, I was good. I got to the D, but then there's a T in the next word. Right, is like betrothed to. <laughs> this is going into the after episode. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.